Well, go ahead and open up in your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 8. I did it again. I will also open up in my Bible to Matthew chapter 8 that was down there. Um, All right. Again. So um, our text today is, again, one that contains a little bit of controversy for those that like controversy and try to find controversy. Um, but, uh, but before we read and begin, I want you to imagine something, all right? Um, imagine you're going about your day, just normal, average, every day, but then you get a phone call from a number you don't recognize. For whatever reason in today's world, you decide to answer it. It's not a scam call. Uh, And when you answer, you're greeted by a calm yet serious voice that informs you that someone you love has just been attacked and ravaged by a wolf. They've survived. They're in critical condition in the hospital. Uh, And in fact, this wolf has attacked a number of people. Some have died. Um, You ask the person, what are you going to do about that wolf? Well... The person replies, we've tried to capture and relocate it, but it just keeps coming right back. Well, why don't you just try and kill it, you ask, growing in your frustration. Well, we've tried that too, but uh, it's eluded all our traps, dodges all our bullets, and the only option we have left is to burn down the forest, which we're not permitted to do. So there you are. You're helpless. Your loved one's in the hospital. There's nothing you can really do but you've got to do something, so you offer to join the next, uh, the next hunting party to capture or kill the beast. But then when you go, you fail again. Just like everybody else, you too have failed. Everyone in town has tried to kill this wolf, and nobody can catch it. How do you feel in that situation? Helpless? Like a failure, maybe? Humiliated that a wolf outsmarted you? I mean, there's legitimately no such thing as a lone wolf, and yet here's this wolf eluding your capture. Now let's pretend that one day, some person who's not even from the town shows up, captures the wolf, handles the problem, uh, the scourge is gone. It's done. Your loved one is avenged. Every person that's been attacked by this wolf has been avenged. How should you feel then? You should feel relieved, right? The problem is solved. Thank goodness this this wolf is is dealt with. But how do you actually feel? Maybe like, how could could they do it, but I couldn't? So uh, you should feel that a great mercy has been accomplished. It's taken care of. But there's something in you that wants to lean the other way. Let's go ahead and read our text for today. So Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28, we're actually going to finish a chapter today. Uh, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so so fierce that no one could pass, pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If if you're to cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd uh, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, 
And going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. So I promised that there's a little bit of controversy here. So uh, the controversy is if, if you've read the Gospels, you'll know that this account actually seems a little bit different in the other two Gospels it's featured in. It's also featured in the Gospel of Mark, and it's featured in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the controversy, honestly, is one... I, I really don't want to spend time on it, but I do want to address it. The, the, the controversy is because in, in, in Mark and Luke, Mark 5 and Luke 8, it's one demon-possessed man. But Matthew says two, very clearly. There have been various attempts to harmonize the fact. Uh, for instance, some have noted that while our, our Bibles say very clearly in verse 28, demon-possessed men, that's actually not in the Greek. Instead, it just says, do, too demonized. That's all it says. The implication is that it's men if you're just translating it out. So, but, but the Greek is ambiguous on gender, doesn't specifically state men, while Mark and Luke both very clearly say one man. So uh, people have tried to harmonize it by saying, well, this is probably a married couple of demonized folk. Um, and the man is the only one who's mentioned, so therefore we just don't talk about the wife, because that's typical in Greek, uh, Greek writings. The, the, the man is the, the household, so therefore you only mention the man, but the implication is that he's got a household. Okay. <laughs> um, I think a, an easier way to harmonize it would be it's, it's, it's two, just like Matthew says. It's not a matter of which account is correct, because they can both be correct. How do I know? Because when there's two people, there's actually still one person. Does that make sense? It's two ones. There's two ones. And chances are there's only one of the, the demoniacs that comes up to Jesus and says things. They might be the spokesman, maybe the more violent, maybe the more, uh, the more outspoken of them. But according to Matthew, there's two. I think that's easy to figure out, right? If, if there's two ones, there's, there's, still, there's still a one. And even in Matthew's account, only one of them speaks to Jesus. So it doesn't say, it, it, it doesn't say you know, what this guy said and then this guy said. So really, Scripture doesn't contradict unless we want to pretend it contradicts. That's really not a big deal. The point is that if you read Luke uh, Luke 8 and, Ma and Mark 5, they're too similar to say, like, oh, well, one dude got it wrong. Um, so let's, let's actually dive into our text. Let's see what's happening. Let's, let's pull from, from what Matthew and Mark and Luke and, uh, say so that we can start understanding. In verse 28, we find that these demoniacs are living in the tombs uh, by the way, the reason I'm saying demoniac or demonized person instead of demon-possessed, which is in my manuscript later, so if I start talking about this, I apologize. But the reason I'm saying it is because in, the, in, in, in Christian culture, we so often draw the distinction with demon possession and demon oppression. Have you ever heard that? Like, one is possessing you, one is oppressing you. There is no distinction in biblical Greek. It's just demoniized or, or demonized. But we do see very clearly some people who suffer more than others. 
So it's not wrong to draw a distinction, but again, the Greek doesn't really say it. So I think it's pretty clear as we'll see that these, these two were really possessed. Um, but but, but let, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to stick to what Matthew says. So demoniac, demonized, instead of demon-possessed, even though that's very clearly in our text, it's, it's a valid interpretation, it's a valid translation. I'm just, I'm just trying to, I was really convicted in that in my study. So, um, so anyway, uh, moving on. We, we find that these two demoniacs are living in the tombs in verse 28, uh, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass by that way or pass that way. That's a big deal. Have you ever met somebody that lives in a crypt? I mean, we often say that. My parents used to say, you live in a crypt because I'd have all the shades drawn and, and, and the door closed and have a fan on me. And like it, it, it smelled because I was a teenager and I smelled. But like we don't actually know anybody that literally lives in a crypt unless there's something pretty wrong with them. Uh, it's a big deal because in, by Jewish law, touching a dead person makes you unclean. There's a ritual cleansing. And even the Gentiles would say, there's something wrong with that dude. That's not okay. They, they would realize that, that if you want to curl up uh, next to a dead guy to go to sleep, there, some, something's up. Something's wrong. And tombs of that day were not like what we think now, the nice, the nice mausoleum style or, or, or bury six feet in the ground in a wooden coffin. That's not what it was. It was actually just like holes. Like you purchased a plot of land, you dug a hole, and when, 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 you know, when grandma passed, right, you go through the burial cleansing ritual or basically you wrap them up. Uh, you put them in the, in the hole and then you cover it with rocks to keep them from scavengers. But here's two people living in the tombs. You'd have family tombs that were cut out, and it would be nice and big. You can still find them. I mean, archaeology is still finding these, these tombs in, uh, in Near Eastern and Middle Eastern countries. But, but this is family plot, and people are living in them, and it's probably not their family. So imagine here you are. You got to, you know... Grandma passed. You got it. You got to pass by the tomb. You got to go to the tomb, and and then and then there's these two that jump out and attack you, harm you. Maybe they've killed some people. I mean, squatters' rights is one thing, but squatters' rights in a tomb is a, not right. We read in in Luke eight twenty nine that there's actually a history too of one of these men uh, where people have gone to like capture them and 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 relocate them but they put them in chains and then they break the chains and flee off into the desert only to return have you ever tried to break a chain have you ever have you ever broken a chain have you ever tied something to like your truck or your car with a chain and it shatters what damage does that chain do when it flies all over the place it's quite an ordeal to have happen. So one of the, at least one of these dudes has a history of breaking his shackles, fleeing off into the desert, and, and nobody, and, and then coming right back to these tombs to live. We read in Mark 5, 3 to 4, the same fact that nobody can bind him with chains, that he's breaking himself loose. 
but we also read of the agony of the demonized person. Uh, in 5.6, Mark 5.6, Mark writes, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. These two people are in agony. They're suffering. It's not just the town that's suffering. It's these people. There's something wrong, something terribly and horribly wrong with these two people that they're, they're crying out in the mountains at night, howling like wolves maybe, and cutting themselves with stones. These two men in verse 29 come to Jesus and they, they, they cry out against him. It's actually the demons crying out. Even though we attribute it to the, to the people's voices, the demons are crying out. How do we know it's the demons? Because of what they say. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Well, that's not well known. Jesus isn't known yet as the Son of God in this time. So, so that, that's not until after he's raised from the dead that people say that. But a demon would know who he is. Uh, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What time? Like 3 o'clock? When do you eat lunch? That time? Is that the time that, that, that we're talking about? No. It's an important statement because the demons here recognize that there is a time of torment and suffering coming for them. And they're, they're, they're using the time in between the, the well, whenever that's going to happen. They're using their time to cause suffering on men and women made in the image of God to cause as much destruction as they can. Now, why do demons target people? It's because they're made in the image of God. It's because God has made everything, but man is special. What's also important and not actually featured in Matthew's text is their stance or their posture before Jesus. We can, we can fill in some of the blanks here. In Mark 5, 6, we read that the man, or probably both, uh, fell down before him. That's the, way, that's the way it's translated in the ESV. Uh, that's actually the Greek word proskuneo, which is where we derive the word prostrate, uh, it means to worship, to bow down and worship. So here come these demonized people, these demoniacs. They come up to Jesus and they fall down before him. Not even demons can stand in God's presence. And that foreshadows the day that, that, that there shall be uh, every knee bowed before him. That's foreshadowing the fact that that these demons are even subject to Jesus. They're subject to him, and they have to come before him, and they can't help but bow down. They have to bow before this King of kings and Lord of lords. James even tells us in James 2.9 that even the demons believe and shudder, and that's exactly what they did there. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed that he was who he was. And they shuddered. They fell down. And then, just to fill in more blanks, in Luke 8, 9, we also read that what's affecting these people is not just one demon. It's actually a bunch. So many that they call themselves legion, for we are many. 
Now, if you've ever watched Ghost Rider or read the comics, ain't nobody here unless, I mean, you might have, but yeah, you know what I'm talking about. All right, so, so, <laughs> so, um, so, and you two probably have seen the Ghost Rider with Nick Cage. Awful movie. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, terrible movie. Anyways, <laughs> but 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 there's this one scene and and with where 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 the the bad guy who's a demon says we're legion for we are many. Anyway, uh but that's what I hear. I hear them answering Jesus cuz Jesus says, you know, who are you? And they say legion for we are many. No wonder these people are suffering these two dudes with legion of demons. Imagine in your case, let's just say that you had various illnesses or problems all at the same time, right? Let's say you have cancer and the flu and pain in your feet, plantar fasciitis, let's say it's plantar fasciitis. You got back pain, you threw out your back the other day and you can hardly breathe. Are you functional? No. No, and those are just physical ailments. These people are suffering from physical ailments because if you take a rock and you cut yourself, guess what's going to happen? We call it an infection because there's bacteria on those rocks, and I doubt they were walking around with neosporin, putting it on their, their cuts and wounds. So these probably disfigured, probably hungry, really messed up people suffering. And by the way, legion... I'm not going to say this is the actual, the actual figure, but to be legion under Roman uh, understanding would be a, a group of soldiers of four to 6,000 set up in, in, in centuries, uh, groups of 80 to 100. Four to 6,000 demons I mean one is enough. So here is a man or a, or a set of people possessed by lots of demons. And they come up to Jesus and they can't help but bow. And the demons are trying to tell Jesus that he's shown up earlier than he should have. Hey, you're supposed to be here at four, not two. Just go home. Go home, Jesus. That is wicked brashness. Evil complaints against God and his timing. Nobody, not even demons, has the right to tell God that he's arrived early or too late for that matter. Which is very often the way we feel against him. But moving through the text again, Matthew also breaks uh, from, from just the story to, to input this almost seemingly inconsequential statement. And there was a herd of pigs eating over, over, over about a way, away, right? So you got verse 29, have, have you come to torment us? Verse 30, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance for them, from them. Now pigs were unclean for Jews to eat. Old Testament law, but sometimes they would raise pigs and sell them to the Gentiles for meat. So we don't know, actually, if, if the people in this region who were the herdsmen were Jew or Gentile. It's been presumed for, for basically uh, for the last couple hundred years that it's Gentiles, but they could have been Jewish. So we don't know. Um, there's a lot of things about this passage we don't know, and that's the fun of it. Uh, the, but the demons seem to realize that they're not going to meet their final end. And so Matthew throws in this anecdotal statement in verse 30 to foreshadow verse 31. Uh, 
where they say, if you cast us out, if, oh, I love that word, if, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. By saying that, they kind of set themselves up in terms of, of the person or the people, the two people, over the value of these many pigs. We don't really see in the text, it's not really clear why they wanted to go into pigs. But what I want you to notice first off is they need Christ's permission. They're not just trying to trap Jesus and, 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 and like um, force him into a deal that he doesn't want. That's, that's not what's happening here. But they need his permission to go into the pigs. What do, what do we make of that? How do we think about that, that these demons need permission to go into pigs? Is it only animals that demons need permission to enter? Because that actually is one interpretation of this, one note in, in church history that, that for whatever reason, they can go into humans whenever, but, uh, but, but there's this off chance that they might go into an animal. You know, that black cat that you have, ooh, maybe it's demon-possessed. Although, golly, sometimes I've met some cats that probably. Anyway, uh, <laughs> dogs too, but I'm just joking. But, but what, what do we make about that? Are, are animals off limits, but people totally within limits? Frankly, I'd love to have a really solid, sincere answer just from the text, but that's not really discussed in scripture. It's not. I don't think that's a proper interpretation, that, that animals are off limits and people are within limits. Um, uh, how the world of angels and demons work is not actually really explained. Although in the 1990s, it was very popular, that the uh, 1980s and 90s, it was popular to presume that it worked a particular way. Um, but in terms of demons, we don't really know much. In terms of angels, we know a lot more, but we really don't know much. We know that there's going to be some funky-looking angels, but when we look at the whole of the biblical narrative, we see these glimpses, these, these kind of uh, partially explained visions of how the, the, the spiritual realm works. I hate that term. Um, but, but one such instance is Job 1 and 2, where if you were to read Job 1 and 2, I'm so tempted, but I'm not going to do it. But if you were to read Job 1 and 2, God is actually the one that makes Satan think of Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And he does it not once, but he does it twice. He does it once in Job 1.8, and again in Job 2.3. So it seems like the, the, th the one thing we can derive for sure over the whole narrative of scripture is that God has authority over the demons. That should be point one. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I, how exactly does that work? I wish I could tell you with clarity. How does God somehow goad Satan into oppressing Job, making him suffer, and keeping his hands clean from evil? I don't know. I really don't know how that works. I don't even know how often God does that. If Job is a one-off case, or, or, or if this is a one-off case. 
But what we do know is that God is holy. We sang that today. He's, he's a redeemer. He's a savior. He never does anything that taints his glory or sacrifices his goodness, that he can still be declared in the Psalms as, as full of mercy and loving kindness. We know all those things. We also know that God's not some evil, insidious, uh, grumpy grandfather in the sky looking to harm humanity. Instead, he's working to restore humanity at just the right time. We know this. We know this. This is clear. That is clear throughout the whole of Scripture. Every bit of that is clear. Somehow, demons and their judgment and demons and, and Jesus' authority over them participates in that plan. What we see here is Jesus' absolute authority over them. That they, they, they say, if, if you're going to cast us out, cast us into that herd of pigs over there. We know that demons are always trying to subtract from God's glory, from trying to, trying to make people think poorly of God's character, trying to, try, trying to ruin his plan even though they know they can't. And that's very clear in when, they, when they say, have you come to torment us before the time? They know. They know their days are numbered. They know that there's an end to this. They know they can't win. But, oh, they're going to try. That's what we know that's clear. And I could, I could harp on that for the rest of the day. I could, I could, uh, I could, I could... I would love one day to just talk about the comparison between New Age heresy and, and biblical Christianity and how they kind of they tried to infiltrate each other in the, the previous four decades. Um, I, I'd love to do that. But the reality is that what we have in Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, is just that God has authority over them. And somehow that doesn't detract from his glory. Just like how our own suffering doesn't detract from his own glory. Our own, our own sin doesn't detract from his glory. So much so that Jesus died to cover it. Moving on, verse 32, because there is actually a conclusion. Uh, verse 32, and he said to them, go. Go. That's all he said. That's all Jesus had to say. He gave the demons the permission to go into the pigs, but, but why would he do that? Didn't he know how this was going to end? We know how it's going to end. We read the last verse. We read chapter, verse 34. Yeah, obviously Jesus knew how this was going to turn out, that this was not going to turn out as the, the people in the region going, you know, praise you, Jesus. Oh, you saved these people. You saved our town from these two crazy tomb-coming uh, ravagers. He knew, he knew how this was going to end, and yet he did it. Why? Why did God say go and let them go into the pigs? It's kind of a mystery in the text, but there's an implication that God sees people as more valuable than even a whole herd of pigs. 
even than one person's whole livelihood, the livelihood of an entire region. God sees these two people as more valuable than all that. Jesus, in his great mercy over these two men, by simply saying go, confirms their value and worth over and above a whole herd of pigs. When he says go, these men are free. These people are free. They're free from the demonizing that's plagued them, that had them howl from the tombs. I mean, even if, if, if you had a demon possessing you, even if you were in every way in your mind twisted, thinking that, that what you're doing is right, there's always, always that thing in the back of a sinner's mind saying, ah, maybe, maybe this is wrong. And I'm sure curling up next to a dead person marks pretty high on that list of recognizing there's something wrong with me. And when Jesus says go, their agony is gone. The control that these demons had over them is vanished. It's gone. In Mark 5.15, we find when the town comes to, to Jesus, the man, or, or these two people, these two people, are sitting clothed in their right mind. After countless days of agony, of torture, of cutting them, their own bodies with rocks, they're sitting there clothed and in their right mind. What freedom do you think that felt like? How good do you think that felt? There is probably nothing in our own lives, barring the forgiveness of our sins, that we could relate to that very moment. Even though the herd of pigs is rushing down towards the waters, going to drown themselves, which again, we don't know. Did the pigs do it? Did the demons do it? Did the pigs do it in reaction to having the demons and maybe the pigs are smarter than people? And instead of running to the tombs, they're going and drowning themselves. We don't know. That is not clear in the text. But what we do know is that those two people, when they sat there, being in their right mind, they were free. Is there something in your life that's making you feel like you're not in your right mind? Is there some sort of a sin that's sitting in you that, that makes you feel crazy, like you will never conquer it, you'll never feel freedom, that you're shackled to it somehow? Some form of suffering that causes you constant, unending anguish? It may be that the Lord will have mercy on you just like he did these two folks. It might also not be. That suffering might actually be for your good and his glory, your joy in his glory. But what I want us to remember is point two. Yep. The Lord has mercy on sufferers in this broken world. How many of you are sufferers? All of you. All of you. In some capacity, all of you, some more than others. But the Lord has mercy on you much like he did these two. Because think about it. What did Jesus do in the situation? When he saw these two people suffering, he didn't, he didn't look at the pigs and go, yeah, I don't know, that's a lot of pigs. Um, I, don't think I, I don't think you guys are worth it. 
That's not what he did. He told the pigs to, or he told the demons to go. Without, without hesitation, go. Because God values sufferers. The last thing I want you to notice is in verse 34. It's about when Jesus was asked to leave by the entire town. Unanimous vote. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. Get out. Please, please go and don't come back. What? (laughs) For some reason, the town was afraid of Jesus for this happening. For whatever reason. Remember that example I gave you in the beginning about a wolf ravaging the town, hurting you personally, uh, hurting loved ones, hurting other people? When the wolf was gone, you should feel relief, right? This, the, the blight on our town is no longer an issue. Vindication and justice happened. The wolf is gone, but that's not how this town thought. They looked at the scourge and they were like, we were better off with them up there in the tombs with, with our pigs. We're better off without, with, without this, these two having, having being clothed and in their right minds. For some reason, they freak out and they say, Jesus, we want you gone. We're not told exactly why. Perhaps it's because of the economic impact. Uh, we're told with Mark and Luke that it was for fear that they told Jesus to leave, but it could have been maybe for fear of economic impact, or maybe they were afraid because Jesus was able to do it and they couldn't. I mean, exorcism was a, was a big deal at that time. Jewish exorcists would go around, they'd have burning candles and incense and command demons to come out, so much so that in Acts we have the sons of Sceva trying to, trying to call demons out by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. Doesn't end up well for them. Those exorcists run away naked and beaten up. I'm serious, Acts 10, it's, a, it's great. Uh, oh, maybe not 10. Uh, anyway, it's somewhere around 10 because Paul's... Anyway, so, so uh, exorcism was a big deal, and here it happened. Maybe they were afraid of that. But how true is this story? When we think about it, when God shows great mercy, what does it end up doing? Makes others jealous, especially unbelievers, especially people that hate Jesus, that hate Christ, that don't want him as their king. It causes them to cower, but also to shove Christ and his people away. Christians are told that they will suffer for doing good. What? That seems foolish. That seems silly. That seems stupid. And yet, that is exactly what Christians are promised. The apostle Peter actually says that. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good than uh, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Better? Why? Why is it better? Because it's God's will. And it was God's will that these two demoniacs would no longer have to suffer the way that they did. It was God's will that Jesus would be shoved out. It's God's will that oftentimes when we show the mercy of Christ to those around us, when we tell people the truth, when we, when we do acts of love, it's so often that other people, non-Christians especially, are going to come up to us and say, yeah, we don't want you here, Christian. <laughs> we don't, we, we want you gone. 
Why? Why do you want us gone? We just do. So what are you going to take away from this? What is the one application? If there's something you're going to read from this section, I want you to take away verse 34. Know that when God empowers you by the power of the Holy Spirit to show acts of great mercy, you're going to be hated. You're going to be thrown out, treated like you're stupid. Our Lord was mistreated in that way. We should probably expect the same. But let that mistreatment come because of our winsome, loving, and compassionate actions, not anything else. We can stand for truth while being loving, you know. Actually does happen. So may it be for our mercy, like the mercy Jesus showed these two, that we're persecuted, much like our Savior. Let's, let's pray and sing our last song. Father, I, I don't know what it's like in, to have an entire town plead for me to leave. I know what it's like in other ways to be told to leave because I'm Christian, but I, I don't know that level of persecution. And I'm thankful that you went through it, Lord, that you, 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 you actually even listened. You didn't just plant your flag in the ground and say, nah, this is mine. Instead, you, you actually went through with it, even though you shouldn't have been treated that way. And I'm thankful also that the, the, at least one of these two wanted to follow you, but your, your statement to them was, no, go home, tell your family the good things that God has done. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the same resolve to be merciful in the midst of persecution to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to sit down and read all of Matthew chapter 8, you would find that Jesus has authority over illnesses, over people, over ritual cleansings, uh, over, over nature itself, and now we discover he has authority over demons. Who is this man? Remember, that was, that's, that's what the disciples themselves said at the end of Jesus calming the storm. Who is this man that even the winds and sea and illnesses and, and demons obey him? He's Christ, the King. Go in peace, saints.